There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Weather show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Climactic. And in this episode, we have an interview with Senator Richard Di Natale, leader of the Australian Greens Party. If you're listening in a country outside of Australia, or you don't have an MMP system, it's important to know that while a third party, the Australian Greens are a large and quite powerful political group here in Australia. And it's safe to say that Dr. Di Natale is the most prominent national figure we've yet to have on the show. But instead of using this opportunity to talk politics and big picture stuff with Richard, I decided instead to talk to him about what it was like for him as a person facing climate change just like the rest of us how he feels about the climate crisis, what he's doing, the decisions he's making in his life. I learned a lot in doing this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into that, one little piece of housekeeping. As I record this, it's Thursday, the 14th of March, which means tomorrow it will be the global school strikes for climate. I'm so excited and I can't wait, but I'm also really nervous because I worry that not a lot is going to happen out of this monumental act of organizing and mobilizing and just action on behalf of the student population. Young people are giving up their time to simply demand that we think about them, that we think about their futures. And it's really inspired me and got me hopeful, but I wonder what the view will be like next week. So as you'll be hearing this on the 21st of March or later, about a week after the strike, we'll be doing a post-school strike special a lot like the preschool strike one we already released, and we'd love you to be a part of it. If you'd like to send in audio messages talking about how the school strike felt to you if you were able to go along, what the news coverage was like in your area if you weren't, and what you think the road looks like now, we'd love to get a wide cross-section of what people think from around the country and around the South Pacific region. So all you have to do is go to Facebook Messenger and send Climactic Show a voice message. We would love to hear from you. All right, now, without further ado, here's our interview with Senator Richard Di Natale. So kind of going straight into it, mm-hmm. Richard, we're sitting in your office at the lovely 90 Collins Street. What a view. What was your story kind of up until becoming a politician? Oh, that's a big question. I was working as a doctor. I'd spent a bit of time after I graduated working in Aboriginal communities. I spent a couple of years working in Tennant Creek for an Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation. I moved around a bit and did some work in India, did some overseas work. And look, I've always been interested in politics, particularly as coming out of university. I was interested, but more as an observer. It was something that other people did. It wasn't something I seriously thought about for myself. Then after working, I think the thing that probably shifted me in terms of my involvement was that time in the Northern Territory working with Aboriginal communities and just seeing this huge health gap and illnesses that didn't exist anywhere else in Australia and it was like a country within another country. So I came back to Melbourne where I'm from and 
I decided I'd get involved. The Greens were a party that represented my values. I joined, thinking I'd end up handing out some how-to-vote cards and maybe stuffing some envelopes, and here I am. I kind of made a conscious decision when I had the opportunity to have you here on the show that I talked to you as Richard, the individual living in this very momentous time we find ourselves. It does help me knowing I'm sitting across from a person and not just the leader of a political party, which is a big thing. Yeah. So, Richard, when was it along that timeline of your life that you sort of became aware of climate change in kind of a conscious way? That's a good question, because I don't think there was one specific moment. I think it was something that crept up on me gradually. I would say the first time I thought of it as a real, as a major threat would have been maybe 20 years ago. And really over time, I mean, we've faced a number of environmental challenges over my lifetime. Obviously, there was the issue with the ozone layer, and that was something that was a very big national debate. And it showed that you can actually get very specific action. You can introduce laws and regulation to address a serious environmental issue. So that was obviously a big debate that preceded my understanding of just how significant climate change was. And then over that 20 years, it sort of crept up on me. And look, the last decade or so, it's been, uh, for me, one of the most critical things that that we could be talking about. And, and over the last five years, to be honest, if we don't deal with climate change and nothing else matters, it's an existential threat. So kind of before reaching this point, you know, whether it was about 10 years ago, where the, the culmination of things we all realized, or those of us in the community realized this is an existential threat, not a series of discrete, distinct crises that can be solved or problems to be fixed. Would you say that the ozone hole in particular, did that feel at the time as you were a grown man then, you know, for some mm. of the younger listeners, mm. even like myself, the ozone hole is kind of like an historical mm. thing we, we don't even know that much about in hindsight. Mm. Did it feel like there's a moment of crisis, there's action on it, it was fixed, Yes. move on. Yes, I think that's broadly right. It was an issue that we needed to deal with. We knew it was critical. We knew Australia was obviously one of the countries that was going to be most affected by it. And there was very concrete, discrete action. Climate change feels different. Climate change is an issue that is so multidimensional. In order to address it, we have to address almost every aspect of the way we live. But often the discussion is framed in terms of sacrifice when actually the transition required could be a really positive one and it could actually improve people's lives in a way that at the moment for many people they just simply can't conceive of that. So if you're living in a coal community, it's not just the benefit you get from addressing climate change. You actually see a material impact to air quality. Mm -hmm. The jobs that are created are are jobs that don't have a negative impact on people's health. The risk of diseases like cancer, lung diseases, cardiac disease, all of those things are improved when you make the transition. And that's got nothing to do with climate change. You don't have the huge impact on the local environment that you have with big, ugly coal mines. So there are a whole range of other benefits that come with making the transition. But again, it it is so big that for many people, it's almost inconceivable that we could make this transition in a way that doesn't cause anything other than hardship. Yeah. And it is such a huge problem. You do have to break it into smaller constituent pieces to start to tackle it. 
I'm curious, Richard, kind of looking back on yourself kind of 20 years ago when, yep. when there was these distinct environmental crises that yep. came up, could be fixed and moved on. That's right. I mean, before that, I'd say, yeah. just to interrupt, uh, the Franklin was another example where mm. it was one of those things as a young kid that actually motivated me. And that was a good example where there was a specific environmental threat, big campaign mobilised around it. I was a 12-year-old kid, saw my uncle go off to the Franklin. He got locked up. And he was a hero for doing that. And so, yes, you've, you know, many of those crises were, were very discreet, campaign mobilising around it, concrete action, political action, mm. and we managed to address what were big threats. So this one might be a bit of an interesting question to kind of think back on when you were that 12-year-old kid and there was this distinct crisis in the Franklin River of Tasmania with the damming and there was this moment where a decision could be made and the, the rest of the path would either be one direction or another. But compare that to a young person now kind of facing a whole world set of problems. Mm. And climate change is, yeah, such an overbearing and and inextricably linked to every other aspect of society problem. The, the question I have is, how did your learning about climate change affect the way you thought about your future and the decision on what direction you would take for your future? Whereas if climate change had been solved in the 70s, 80s, 90s, along mm. with the ozone hole, if we'd acted on James Hansen or countless yeah. other scientists telling us, how do you think the knowledge of climate change curbed your trajectory into later life? That's a, it's an interesting question. I, I, I suppose there's different ways of answering that. If you become a member of a party like the Greens, one of the driving forces behind that is an understanding that the relationship that humans have with nature is critical, that we live within a, a planet with finite resources and that what we need to do is recognise that we can't keep extracting, polluting and consuming the resources of the earth, that there is a cost associated with that. And that's, I mean, I'm trained in a scientific discipline, that seems obvious, the air we breathe is a function of a healthy ecosystem. The water we drink is a function of a healthy ecosystem. And so I've always had a view, and it's something that's been with me as long as I can remember, that we actually need to have a relationship with the earth where we understand that basic principle, that it's the earth that sustains us, and we need to look after it. So I suppose I see climate change through the same lens. And so in one sense, it really doesn't, it hasn't changed my view about what we need to do. All it's done is accelerate the urgency because now what we've got is we've got this existential threat that is saying, well, okay, you might lose the Franklin. That's a tragedy, but it's largely confined to one community. The ozone layer may create a set of problems, but they're problems that we can the species will survive. Mm -hmm. Climate change actually is very different. Climate change is very different because it actually renders the earth potentially uninhabitable in some parts of the earth and will completely and radically transform the way we live in a bad way. Mm -hmm. So for me, what it's done is accelerate that understanding of what I've always believed. It's reinforced it, but just created a, a huge sense of urgency. And that's why, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this job is because I understand how urgent that challenge is. And we've got, what, 11 years The IPCC are telling us, and if we don't turn things around within that decade, then who knows what the future holds? 
what it's really done is just it's just really, I suppose, accelerated my desire to want to make a difference and make a difference quickly. On the show, we talk a bit about personal sustainability and mm. what you are changing, what you are giving up in your life. And you are operating at a, a different scale of play. You are in the political realm. And I think you'd probably agree that it is social change, communal responsibility or, or societal change that, that's going to be the real lever to pull to fix climate change. How do you approach that dichotomy or, or, or that contradiction or that conflict where some people are focusing a lot on their personal sustainability, giving up time and resources to achieve an at-home state of sustainability, but then they're not going out and lobbying and mm, mm. taking part in political activism because we all only have so much time mm. and resource. Where do you personally sit on that scale? I kind of can guess that a lot of your time is spent on larger social yeah. societal issues. I just think you need to do both. And I think to see them in conflict is actually a false alternative. I think we need to do both. Look, one of the things that I hate about my job is I'm getting on and off airplanes a lot. And so, you know, Elephants that's... in the room. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm doing a lot of travel and air travel's a huge source of emissions. But I understand that to do this job, that's one of the sacrifices you have to make. But what I also do in terms of my personal life is I live in a way that I, I try and be sustainable. But like most people, you'll never achieve a level that you're entirely satisfied with, mm. but you do your bit. And I suppose the first step is being conscious of the problem and your role in it and how you can address it. I suppose the path I've taken is I understand that there are a whole range of structural problems that force people to live in a particular way. They create a set of circumstances that mean that people have very few choices. And so the reason I've chosen to engage in politics is to try and change those structures, to try and do something that actually empowers people rather than forces people down a narrow path. I don't think the problem is that people are making these choices because they're inherently lazy and selfish. I think that we have a system that directs people down a particular path that means it makes that, that it's harder for them to make the choices that most people want to make. And that's why I've chosen you know, system-level change mm -hmm. rather than focusing purely on my own personal, the way I live my life, although I try and do that as well. Yeah. You only need to look at the, just a good example is a recycling crisis we're facing at the moment. People are absolutely committed to recycling. When you consider what everybody does in their own homes, and this is one of the untold environmental success stories where people are sifting through their rubbish at home, they're recycling, and now we've got this crisis where a whole lot of recycling that people are doing at home is ending up in landfill. That's a broken system. Mm -hmm. It's not people's fault that no. that's happening. And it is something people are taking pride in, and they, they like being part of a solution. They exactly. They like part of a better system exactly. when the system is available to them. Yeah. So that is kind of causing a lot of stress and worry in the community and yes. society. And I'm sure there have been other times that you've been sort of stressed out and worried at the, the scale of what's going on, and also with the difficult task of juggling priorities. Mm. So kind of curious, Richard, have there been times where you've been burnt out or kind of overwhelmed by the scale of the climate crisis, as many of us have been, and how you've gotten through that or how you've recovered? Burnt out, no. Obviously, concerned, frustrated, angry, all of those things, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, and again, I'll come back to this, 
making this transition could be such a positive thing for all of us, where we address it in a way where we create a whole range of co-benefits, to use the jargon, not just reducing emissions, but, for example, in transport system, less congestion, having a mass public transit system that works for people, that's a good thing. Spending less time stuck in traffic, that's a good thing. Having cleaner air, that's a good thing. Having an energy system that's not dominated by big multinationals who are trying to screw people over. Decentralising our energy system so that people have got more control over the energy they're, they're creating, that they're distributing through networks. Having been less beholden to these big multinational companies, reducing prices, being smarter about the way we use our energy, all of those things should be positive. And yet, we're stuck in this, and particularly here in Australia, with the corporate media and those big, powerful vested interests, the coal, oil and gas companies. We're stuck in this debate, which is firstly a debate that's not happening in many other countries, which is does a problem exist? We haven't got past step one in some quarters. Thankfully, most of the community understand there is a problem. And then how do we make that transition to take advantage of, of all this good stuff? So, of course, it's bloody frustrating but I can't afford to get too frustrated or too angry in this job because I think there's a healthy level of anger that sometimes can keep you motivated and keep you driving for change, but I've never got to a point where I've wanted to give up. Mm, that's fantastic. It's a really good answer, Richard, and what I picked out from that was because you're focusing on solutions, the, the natural kind of response to, to frustration is anger at that. Whereas a lot of us sort of working in the community that I've spoken to and for myself, our problem is an overwhelming sense of fear because we're scared of inaction and we're looking sort of long-term at what happens if we do nothing. So I'm really happy that you're kind of self-diagnosing with you're fighting off feelings of, of anger in the short term because you are trying to get stuff done and you can see the upsides and you can see a better future and you're frustrated that that's being slowed rather than us. We're scared. We're not getting it up to speed fast enough. Mm. I think that's what we want to see in, mm. in political leaders, especially. And yeah. that's, that's really encouraging to, to hear you say that. I think I'd rather have your symptoms than mine. That's, that's great. <laughs> but uh, it's also empowering. I mean, even no matter at what scale you're working and where you're coming at this problem from, one of the things about my job is I get to see people at a local level doing great stuff. And it's people working within their local communities that are miles ahead of politicians. They're miles ahead of where the political debate is, a lot of work going down at local government areas, these self-forming groups that are trying to make their neighbourhoods renewable, not just transform the energy system, but the food system, improve transport. All of those things are, for me, I get to see that and I get to engage with it. And so that's, that also gives me heart as well. And it empowers those people who are involved in it because they're doing it despite the political debate, not because of the leadership that should be happening at a political level. At those community level scales, all they've got is what they can do and the resources they have and kind of the higher levels of political power are, are abstracts and they mm. don't really have much say. Mm. So it's kind of interesting. Of course, the elephant in the room is we have a federal election coming up in a couple of months. And here on Climactic, we mainly talk to smaller community groups, individuals, community groups use us as a platform. And now with you on the show, it might be a good time to ask, how do these groups, how do groups like... Friends of the Earth, First Friends of Dandenong Creek, Friends of Werribee River. How do they interact with the Greens and how can they support you and how do you support them? 
Well, I think the first thing is to recognise the role that the Greens play in the national debate. And I think one of the things I find frustrating sometimes is being a third party, a lot of organisations, and even you would expect people with who are like-minded, who share the values that we have, really see the two parties and direct their focus and engagement at the two major parties mm-hmm. because the current state of Australian politics is that one of those parties is likely to form government. My advice to them, to all of them, is to recognise that the Greens play a really powerful role in shaping the national debate, that our influence firstly through the Senate, and the Senate is absolutely critical. People often focus on who's going to be the PM, but unless they can get legislation through both houses of parliament, it doesn't matter who's the Prime Minister, the Senate actually plays a very powerful moderating role in Australian politics. So I'd say to them, Remember that the Senate is also important. So my direct pitch is engage in the politics, understand the politics and engage in it. The Senate is critical. We need everybody to engage in better understanding of what the role of the Senate is and why we need to have more Greens voices in the Senate. People can get involved in lots of different ways. Those organisations are talking to their members. What they can do is they can be really clear that they have a set of concerns that they're lobbying their politicians with and they communicate back the positions of major parties. So use their power and influence and the community voice that they're representing. Go and talk to politicians on all sides. Get very clear responses about what they think, what their response is to their specific requests or asks. If it's a local environmental issue, what does the local candidate representing party X believe? What does the opposition candidate believe? What does the Greens candidate believe? And communicate that back to members because most, almost always, it's the Greens position that is much more closely aligned with the community than the Labor or Liberal position. And that's a way of using their influence, but engaging with politicians and saying to them, we're talking to a big group of people, we represent you know, so many thousand people, they want to know what your position is on our issue and we're going to communicate back to them. That's a way of demonstrating that they have some power and influence and actually shifting the political debate in in their direction. So the other thing to say, of course, is make sure you know who your local Greens candidate is. Make sure you know who your senator is. If you're in Victoria, it'll be myself and Senator Janet Rice. Engage with our officers. You can come and volunteer for the local Greens campaign during election time. That can be something as simple as just handing out how to vote cards during election periods. It can be actually getting involved with the campaign, coming and helping to distribute campaign information, all the stuff, the basic stuff of politics, handing out information at train stations, letterboxing, door knocking, making phone calls, engaging in conversations with local communities. If you don't want to be political, then you've always got the other route, which is to try and influence political parties through your engagement with them and communicating their responses on key issues. There's direct taking action with the Greens candidate, and then there's understanding their position and communicating it back to members That's right. of a group. So That's they right. actually know that, hey, if I'm spending my time on a Saturday weeding the park so there's good runoff into this stream, why would we then not let members know that the Labor candidate's not going to Support it. That's yeah, right. Support and industrial regulations correct. for the, the park up the road that's causing pollution. Correct. And that's exa- And a lot of the, I think a lot of groups come at this with good intentions, uh, but are not effective in terms of their advocacy mm. because they expect that just providing a politician with some evidence 
and being respectful and generous is all it takes to get politician over the line. One thing I've learned, and it's been a hard lesson, is that the best advocates are the ones who are noisy, the ones who communicate their position back to their membership and demonstrate to politicians that they are talking to several thousand people, for example, and that a politician's response will be communicated back to those people, and that means, in the eyes of the politician, votes. So you're really, to be an effective advocate, you've got to go in there, demonstrate you're representing a lot of people and that you're talking with those people about that politician's position. So in a perfect world, an advocate could be a constituent, but in this world, an advocate had better represent a voting bloc. Exactly. Do you think that groups could be more effective by saying, hey, we're, we're spending all this time in pursuit of, of this thing, of protecting this park, of getting this legislation enacted? I'm doing a lot of work with a container deposit scheme oh, yep. sort of campaign at the moment around yeah. Victoria. So would it make sense to say, okay, this group, we're going to go directly engage and volunteer with this candidate because we know they support our position. We're going to give up some of our time on this campaign to actually get the political levers engaged. So we're not just being advocates. We're not just being campaigners, but we're going to get some political Mm. force inside of the game going as well. Well, I would argue that you should do both. I think the first thing is to, and it's important, I think, that groups are able to demonstrate Firstly, that they've got this block of people. Second, that they communicate the political party's position on those issues. Once I think that's done, then if you're confident that the position that, that's best represented is the position, for example, on container deposit legislation is the Greens position, then of course it makes sense to do what you can to actively, actively advance the Greens candidate. Now that doesn't have to be done by the organisation in official capacity. It could be that those people volunteer with that specific campaign and that they go and hand out on election day as individuals. It might mean that they go and do all those other things that are part of the political engagement process. I think both things are important. I mean, I'm in politics because I know politics matters. Politicians do make a difference. They do shape the direction of the world and people need to recognise that this is an important part of the process to achieve change. It's If you have a theory of change and you understand how change happens, politics is a big part of that and you have to engage in it. That's right. There's so many groups out there with full of so many great people who are gun-shy of politics. They Mm -hmm. want someone else to kind of handle that side. They want to take care of their patch or their passion project. They want to sort of exercise their feelings of fear or anger about the climate crisis in kind of a way that makes sense to them. So they do want to... They do want to know their vote matters. Yes. And so we kind of heard a little bit of, of why you believe very strongly that the Greens are the right place for their votes and why you are the best political voice for the climate community. But the Greens, of course, are a party with, with more than one priority. Mm. Despite being a third party, you are a large party. That's right. And, of course, there will be a range of constituents and, and priorities that make up any party. So... With the federal election only a couple months away, can you give your pitch to the climate community to say we are your best voice Yes. for the action, for, for your number one priority, which is action yes. on climate change? Look, you're absolutely right that we're a party that has a broad policy platform, and we're very proud of that platform. It's a very progressive platform. It's a platform based on principles of sustainability, 
social justice, peace and non-violence and grassroots democracy. They're the key pillars of our, of our party. I've said this on a number of occasions, as important as everything that we are campaigning on is, climate change is an existential threat. It's the thing that has to be sit above everything else because unless we deal with climate change, everything else is just background noise. We're the only party that has a plan to deal with the key drivers of climate change in Australia. In Australia, we're very dependent on coal, both for our own energy system, but also in terms of coal exports. 80% of the coal that we dig up in Australia ends up being burnt overseas. One of the different, we had this conversation earlier about discrete environmental challenges, one of the big differences with climate is it's a global challenge. Whether coal's burned overseas or in Australia doesn't actually matter. It goes into the atmosphere and it's contributing to climate change. So we have to deal with this problem on a global level and Australia has to recognise that the contribution we make through the burning of coal, whether it be here or overseas, is something that can't continue to happen, which is why we're the only party actually talking about coal and talking about phasing out coal, both in terms of energy here in Australia, but coal exports. And we've got a plan to do that. Now, it's great that we're having a discussion about renewable energy. We think that Australia could be 100% renewables within a decade. But it actually doesn't matter if we're continuing to burn coal to export it and where it's burnt overseas. Pollution will continue to go up, and it has been going up, apart from the period where we had a price on carbon. That was a very big Greens achievement. So pollution has to come down, and just talking about having you know, a 45% or 27% target doesn't matter. We've actually got to get pollution down. Having targets for renewables is only one small part of the equation. So I suppose I'd say to all of your listeners, we're the only party that's talking about the biggest challenge when it comes to climate change here in Australia, and that is the mining, export and burning of coal. We're a party that doesn't take fossil fuel donations. One of the big problems in this debate is that the coal, oil and gas lobby are very powerful. They donate millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars over recent years to both sides of politics. That's why we're not getting the sort of change we need. We don't take that money. The other part of the equation is the interaction between politicians, business community and lobbyists. We've got politicians who can't wait to leave the parliament so they can go and lobby for the coal, oil and gas industry. So if we're going to deal with climate change, you've got to understand the scale of the problem. You've got to understand what's required. And what's required now is no more new coal mines, no more new gas, no more new oil, and a plan to phase out the existing coal exports we have right now. And so I suppose that's what I'd, I'd leave with your listeners. Of course, 100% renewables. Of course, we need to do more with battery storage and we've got battery storage targets. Yes, while we do all of that, we need to be really clear that we're looking after people whose livelihoods depend on coal right now. But, you know, the sad thing is this is going to happen anyway. We've got companies like Glencore capping their coal production, big coal countries like Japan and South Korea saying we're getting out of coal. We have to do it. The market's going to take us in that direction 
we can either plan for that transition and make sure that we look after people through it, or we can do what we've seen over previous years, which is let the market rip, leave people behind, and ultimately this thing happens anyway. The challenge, though, is is it going to happen quickly enough? And our plan is to understand the urgency, to put in place what is a, a very clear plan, and to look after the communities who are going to be impacted by this transition away from coal here in Australia. That's right. But the challenge is to do it, as you say, as quickly as possible, which, of course, our listeners care a lot about, and also fairly. But Inside if- 10 years. I mean, that's the, yeah. that we have, we've got a decade. And that's going to require to go from being a country that exports a lot of coal to by 2030 have mm-hmm. no more coal exports. That's our only hope. Mm-hmm. And again, neither party want to touch it. In fact, they're both looking at opening up a new coal mine, the Adani mine in the Galilee Basin. And of course, we know how disastrous that would be. That's right. And for any listeners with friends or family in coal areas who are still, who want to protect the jobs they've, they've mm. had for, for decades, somebody making the, the economic argument, which is sometimes hard to make, but it's as simple as if Trump can't save coal in America, what makes you think Morrison yeah. can no. in Queensland? But you know, I think most people in coal communities understand it. Yeah. They actually, and we've, we've done some, visited obviously a number of coal communities. And they actually understand it. They understand that coal has a very limited future. What they want is they want a plan. Yes. You need to look after us. We need to be retrained, reskilled. We want to know where the new industries are coming from. We want you to commit to actually supporting those industries in our communities. And we can do all of that. But no one wants to talk about it. Last question, if I can, Richard. But to talk about kind of the future, uh, we, of course, have something very exciting happening on March 15th, and I'm I cannot wait for I was there for on November 30th. It's happening all over the world. And we have the school strike for climate. Now, I've been speaking quite a lot to the organizers of this and especially the new group that's come out of school strike climate leaders, which is getting into your space. It's very much like a Emily's List style political candidate vetting and advocacy and endorsement program. And the organizers of that group, they come from a really diverse mix of, of political backgrounds, you know, based on their own beliefs and their parents' mm-hmm. beliefs and what they've grown up as. We've got former young liberals, labor, greens, all in the mix. I know for sure the, the organizers of at least the Melbourne strikes and a few other cities as well will be hearing this. What would you have to say to them, especially about how they can take that passion they've got and that enthusiasm and how they could sort of channel that through the Greens to be really effective? Well, again, I would say get involved with Greens campaigns. Get involved with the campaigns for the Greens and do what you can to ensure that you've got a strong Green representation in the Senate, as I said, which is critical. And we've got some key lower house seats and they're very exciting seats. In seats like McNamara, in seats like Kuyong, where we've just pre-selected Julian Burnside, seats like Higgins, where we've got climate champions in all of those seats, get involved with those campaigns, be part of the political process. It's very exciting being part of a political campaign, particularly when it's a campaign that's where there's a lot of energy and focus. And, and where and, your beliefs are being talked about. Exactly. Where there's an election campaign, put those issues on the map. So I suppose that would be one of the key pieces of advice I give them. And I'm looking forward to seeing them on March 15. I was just talking to my partner about this and making sure that the two boys know they've got a day off school and we're out there marching. Well, hopefully they're the ones who came to you, right, saying, Dad, we want a strike. (laughs) (laughs) They're eight and ten, and I think the attraction of missing a day of school is as uh, much, uh, you know, uh, uh, something to look forward to as doing the climate strike. But they get it. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's the thing that actually gives me hope. I go and speak to a lot of young people, 
And thankfully, young people get it. Mm. It's some of the dinosaurs who are holding us back. So I think what's happening on March 15 is a wonderful thing and it fills me with hope for the future. Thank you so much for that, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Well, I got to say, getting to speak to Richard in his office like that was an amazing experience. And straight off the bat, I just want to tell you all, it was a lot easier to arrange that than I ever thought possible. His staff were really supportive, really friendly, and really collaborative leading up to the meeting. So if you think you'd like to interview a politician or a local leader, a prominent figure of any sort, you'd be surprised how far you can get just by asking the question. And if the idea of doing an interview like this does speak to you, if that is something that would interest you, I would just like to quickly plug here that Climactic is open to new hosts. If you've had a career in radio or journalism and want to keep those skills alive, we'd love to work with you. Or if you're starting from where I was a year ago, from absolute zero, we'd love to work with you as well. If there's a story from your local community you think needs to get told, we'd love to help you tell it. All right, now back to the interview. What I especially took away from that is that when Richard Di Natale looks at the future, he's not filled with despair or hopelessness. He's not getting burnt out. He's not getting overwhelmed. He's getting angry. And I found that to be a very refreshing perspective. And it's a perspective I think I most want in a leader who is looking to actually address the problem and fix it. The Australian Greens Party have policy that will help us address climate change, that will get us further, faster. And when you've got the means to fix a problem, but you're not able to do it due to politics or any other reason, the natural reaction there, of course, is frustration and anger. Now, I think Richard Di Natale is just about the nicest guy I've ever met, and I would find it hard to picture him angry, but anger is, I think, warranted when you're in that situation, when you can see a path forward and you're not able to pursue it. So I'm personally going to take that on board and try to do that more in future, because I don't tend to get angry about climate change. I tend to get despondent, and I don't think despondency or hopelessness is really any position of strength. So instead, I'll try to be more like Richard, have my eyes on the solutions, be working towards them with everything I've got, and in moments of frustration, I'm going to allow myself to get a little bit angry about it, but to keep going, because that's the only way we're going to get out of this existential crisis. So I hope you enjoyed this, I hope you got something out of it, and it was such a pleasure to get to bring it to you. Thank you so much for your time, we'll see you again next week. And please, if you liked this, share it with a friend. You've been listening to Climactic, a podcast from the Climactic Collective, a group of storytellers dedicated to sharing inspiring, powerful stories from the climate change community. If you've got a story you'd like to tell and you'd like us to help you share it, just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Climactic Show. If you enjoyed this program, please tell a friend. Independent shows like ours need the help of our listeners to grow. And if you had the time to leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts, or your podcast app of choice, we'd greatly appreciate it. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidicaro. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and we'll be back with another story next week.